Okay, good evening, um, everyone. My name's um, Alan Manning. I'm the current head of the economics department here at LSE. And we're very uh, pleased to have here tonight uh, Loretta Napoleoni, um, who's going to speak about uh, her latest book, uh, Malnomics. Um, she's an expert on uh, terrorist financing and money laundering and has advised um, various governments, international organizations on those issues. She's also advised you know, banks on the um, strategies about the current economic crisis and things like that. Um, she's been a regular commentator on the media. So I think she kind of um, knows a lot about a lot of interesting things. Um, but today she's going to talk um, about her latest book, uh, Malnomics. Um, and I think it's going to be about what's happening in China, but also maybe a bit about um, the lessons that that has for us in the, in, in the West. Um, so she's going to speak for about um, 40 minutes, and then hopefully that will give us lots of time for questions. And then right at the end, there's going to be the opportunity, if you go outside, you can, you can buy her book, and then Loretta has kindly agreed to stay to, um, to sign those books, if you, would, if you would like that. So anyway, without more ado, I'd just like to, um, to welcome Loretta to the LSE. Thank you very much. This one. Excellent. I'm not very good with technology, I must say. I prefer economics. Right. So, um, well, thank you so much for organizing this conference. It is always a great pleasure to come back to London School of Economics, where I studied um, as far as 1974. That was uh, my first year at London School of Economics. So every time I come back here and give a lecture, I think about how old I am. But I do enjoy. I do enjoy. So uh, let me begin this lecture by saying that um, this book, Maonomics, uh, is actually not a book about China. It's actually a book about us. What I did is to analyze the economic miracle of China in order to use it as a sort of benchmark to analyze our failure. So it is not a book about communism, and I am not a communist, as many people have said, even if I studied at the London School of Economics in the 1970s. <laughs> it is very much a book that wants to create a certain debate. And in fact, the subtitle of the book is Why Chinese Make Better Capitalists Than We Do. So uh, why did I write this book? Well, I wrote this book uh, also because uh, I've been watching a major change taking place in the world, uh, a sort of shift of power in the balance of power away from the West towards the East. Um, it is very much as uh, Martin Wolf uh, said in the Financial Times uh, a few years ago, uh, the great Western anomaly is over. We got to get adapted to a world that is ch changing fast. And in order to get adjusted to this uh, new environment, I think we have to show some humility. Uh, by showing humility means uh, we have to learn some lesson also from other countries, not only from you know, Western countries. And one of these countries, of course, is China. So I think there is a lot that China can teach us. 
So let me let me begin the lecture with uh, um, just brief comments about the euro crisis, which has been with us for the last two years, and will continue, I think, to be with us uh, for a little bit longer. Um, now we all know that. Uh, Last week, we have reached an agreement about Greece, and, uh, and then this agreement became a disagreement. Then uh, again, there was an agreement, which of course now seems to be a disagreement. Uh, this is the story of the uh, crisis, uh, the Euro crisis related to Greece. And um, I think you know we got used to a certain extent to this kind of uncertainty related to what is happening to the euro. Um, but for the sake of this lecture, let's just assume that uh, at least in the short term, uh, Greece will not go into disorderly default. Um, it will not exit the euro. The austerity program, which has been just introduced and voted, on Sunday will be introduced. So what's going to happen next? Now let's look at the condition of the deal, which I think is uh, quite interesting per se. So the private investor have accepted a 70% haircut on their debt, which is de facto a default. Um, in exchange of this haircut, uh, the Greek government has agreed to another round of austerity, which means that there will be faster cuts in salaries, reduction in government expenditure, and uh, uh, which includes, of course, the already broke health sector um, in Greece. In some hospitals, they do not have enough medicines to cure uh, sick people. Um, they also have to have another cut of 15,000 people employed in the private sector. So by 2020, the uh, public sector will have uh, almost disappeared. Uh, so the key question here to ask is, uh, is this austerity program going to work? So, uh, so far, the austerity program has not worked at all. So the uh, GDP of Greece has contracted over the last 12 months by 6%. So, which means that the ratio between the GDP and uh, the national debt has gone up to 148%. Now, according to the consensus, uh, um, this new round of austerity will contract in the next 12 months the GDP further 5%, which means that the ratio, again, between you know, the national debt and the GDP will go up even higher. Now, um, one of the problems why all of a sudden in the last two days uh, the AAA countries uh, from Europe, uh, so Germany, uh, Holland, and Finland, uh, are showing uh, um, a sense of uneasiness about releasing the additional 130 billion needed by Greece in order to uh, pay um, salaries, pension, but also the debt by the 20th of March, is the fact that they are realizing that this money are not going to be enough. That means that very soon Greece will come back and ask for yet another bailout. Now, unemployment is above 20%. Youth unemployment is 47%, which means that 
one every two young people is actually out of work. And finally, foreign investment has disappeared. Most of the business which are conducted in Greece at the moment are actually conducted using banks outside the country because people are afraid, of course, that the country is going bust. So basically, against this scenario, it's very difficult that the policy implemented by the IMF, which is very similar to the one that was implemented in the Baltic countries uh, recently, which is an internal devaluation in order to bring you know, prices down, is going to work. And one of the reasons why it's not working is because Greece shares the same currency of Germany. Now, here there is an interesting comparison of you know, basic uh, uh, goods, the cost, and you can see that there is really very, very little difference between you know how much the cost of living is in Germany and how much is in Greece. But a fundamental difference here is the salaries. So um, salaries in Greece are much, much lower than in Germany. And the second round of austerity, which uh, has been approved on Sunday, will include a farther reduction of 20% in salaries and pensions. So um, what has happened so far is that uh, Europe has tried every single possible way in order to resolve this crisis without achieving uh, a great success. So, the uh, next step has been, and here are our wonderful leaders, um, the uh, next step has been to go and ask China for help. So that has taken place at the G20. Uh, this is a picture of the last G G20. In fact, you can notice that Berlusconi is still there. Uh, at the G20, um, the, the Russian, uh, the um, uh, members of the BRIC countries, uh, so the Indians uh, and uh, the Brazilians, and of course, you know, the Chinese, uh, have actually declined to help uh, Europe. The reason being, Europe does not have a plan uh, of action in order to uh, start growing again. Um, Berlusconi and Sarkozy have personally pleaded um, help to the Chinese, who also have a Refuse. And finally, at Davos, there have been several meetings behind closed doors uh, between the Europeans and the Chinese trying to strike a deal. Now, um, recently, uh, we're talking about the last 24 hours, there have been reports circulating in the financial press saying that uh, uh, the leader, uh, when uh, in China during a meeting between the EU, the EU, EU delegation and the Chinese has actually said that the Chinese are willing to do uh, whatever they can to help uh, Euro, uh, the Euro crisis and Europe. Um, that doesn't mean that the Chinese are ready to give us money. Uh, that means that the Chinese actually want to help because of course um, it is important for their economy to maintain a certain kind of stability. And there is not going to be any stability if, of course, you know, Europe goes into a major recession. Um, now, uh, China, of course, has the money to come to the rescue of Europe uh, with about $3 trillion <coughs> in foreign exchange reserves. It could easily, it could easily help us out. But uh, the question is, uh, will uh, China actually do that? 
Now, um, let's look at the arguments in favor, which is what we read uh, in the newspapers. Um, basically, uh, China is dependent upon Europe because Europe is one of the most important trade partners, and therefore, uh, if it wants to maintain a certain rate of growth, um, it must sustain the European market. Uh, why? Because, you know, of course, uh, chi the Chinese economy is still depending upon you know, the export market. Um, so uh, some of the predictions, the most negative predictions so far are that if Europe goes into a major recession, um, the Chinese GDP may contract uh, to the point where China rate of growth will go down to 3 to 4%. This is too low to maintain equilibrium in China. And I'm not talking about the economic equilibrium here, I'm talking about the political and social equilibrium. In China, there is um, a social contract in place. Um, the government uh, uh, can maintain uh, its position, uh, so it can be unchallenged by uh, the population, um, as long as it provides for economic growth. So prosperity is the key to the maintenance of a system which is still basically a communist system. Um, in order to achieve that, um, China has to grow um, around 6%. So that's you know the key issue. Now, I uh, I don't buy this argument, um, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, basically, in uh, 2008, uh, there was the same argument um, because of the contraction of the world economy linked to the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Uh, many economists were saying that uh, China was going to contract, um, that this so-called decoupling was not going to take place. Well, in reality, what has happened? is that the Chinese economy and the economy of you know, the BRIC countries also uh, only contracted for a short period of time. We're talking in particular of the last quarter of 2008, and then the economy started growing again. Now, how did this happen? This happened because there was um, a stimulus package which was put in place in the economy to sustain uh, internal demand. Um, now, in uh, China at the moment, internal demand is too low. The government is very concerned about that. So possibly we could have another stimulus package which will be direct instead of you know, sustaining the economy through the banking system, which of course you know, can create inflation, um, through directly you know, sustaining the domestic demand. Another important element uh, which we have to take into consideration is the economies of the BRIC countries. Now, in uh, in the last 20 years, we've seen a tremendous growth taking place uh, between emerging countries. Uh, so it's not anymore a situation as it was, for example, in the 1980s, where most of the trade was north-south. Now, you know, we have south-south growth. So um, the BRIC countries are not in a similar situation as you know, the European uh, countries. They are not in a recession. Of course, they will suffer from a European recession, but you know, their markets may actually sustain the Chinese economy. And finally, we have the US, which is growing slowly, not very fast, but you know, this is a fundamental element because of course you know, the United States is a very important trade partner of China. So I think because of all of these reasons, 
I think that it's possible that we're going to see another decoupling taking place. And also that the European recession, uh, even the disintegration of the euro in the medium to long term, may actually be a catastrophe which is very much located in Europe and not as much in the rest of the world. Now, um, the Chinese... Uh, maintain their position as you know major um, exporter um, if this hypothesis uh, that I just presented uh, will take place uh, I, I think that you know China may actually maintain its position uh, as it is now to be you know the leading uh, um, the locomotive of you know the world economy and will sustain you know, the um, emerging markets which means that you know we will end up being uh, in serious troubles. And for we, I refer to the Europeans and not, of course, to the Americans. Um, so the Chinese uh, are reluctant at the moment to help the Europeans uh, um, because the Europeans do not have a program to get out of this situation. What do the Europeans have done so far? Um, well, basically, is using debt in order to sustain uh, additional debt. Now, here are, I want to open a very brief uh, uh, technical parenthesis about you know why um, many people believe that the situation of the debt of the periphery at the moment is much better uh, than it was in November. Um, why the reports uh, coming out from uh, the um, rating agencies are ignored by the market, which continues to be fairly bullish about um, the debt of uh, Spain and Italy. Uh, let me tell you that uh, the only reason why this is happening is because of this. Um, the, at the beginning of December, the European Central Bank launched a program which is uh, the LTRO, uh, which is basically the offer to banks to buy um, unlimited quantities of uh, uh, bonds um, with a maturity up to three years. Uh, um, this has created this you know, massive increase in, uh, in debt. Um, now, what has happened is that uh, uh, Italy and Spain, in particular Italy, at the beginning of uh, December, just two days before this program was launched, uh, passed uh, legislation whereby a guarantee um, the government uh, backing, so government guarantee to any kind of uh, bonds produced by Italian banks. So what the Italian banks have been doing uh, until now is issuing their own bonds, use this to exchange uh, the bonds with the um, European Central Bank, uh, so they got uh, um, they get money out of it with whom they buy the Italian uh, debt. Um, this, of course, is a situation which is completely absurd. With the Spanish are doing the same thing, because we have banks which have a very very bad liquidity guaranteeing for governments which are in debt and back governments which are in debt guaranteeing for banks issuing bonds which of course you know are not backed by real liquidity so this is potentially is a very explosive situation um, if one of the banks or one of these countries is in difficulties if one of these banks um, 
actually um, goes into the fault, we may see a domino effect very similar to the one that was prevented after you know, the fall of Lehman Brothers. Now, the Chinese know that because you know, most people uh, in finance actually know that. And this is one of the reasons why the Chinese are very reluctant to intervene um, to help the Europeans. And to confirm that, I think we should look at what the Chinese have done so far. They actually bought a very um, small uh, portion of uh, the Pireos. Um, now, the reason why they did it, of course, is because it was convenient for them. So, um, if we read in between the line of what the leaders of China are saying to the Europeans, is so we will help, we will intervene when it is convenient for us. China will never do anything that is not for China. This is something that we have to understand. Um, and this is why it will be a completely different leader than has been you know, the United States and the UK. They're not interested in dominating the world, they're interested in the welfare of China. And so far, I don't think that Europe is you know, in the cards for you know, improving uh, the welfare of China. Finally, I want to say uh, something about the Mm, historical relationship that there is between the Chinese and the Europeans. Um, the mistrust that there is uh, is also related to the what in China they call the century of humiliation. Um, after the Opium War, uh, China was colonized uh, by the British and then you know, by the European powers um, until the Maoist revolution, the country was uh, humiliated by the presence of uh, foreigners. Now, this is deeply, deeply rooted in, uh, in the Chinese collective imagination, so we should not discount that. Um, and finally, one word about Syria, because I'm sure that there'll be a question about that. Why did the Chinese decide not to back the UN resolution about um, uh, Syria? Well, the answer is the Chinese uh, are very concerned about the usage of the resolution, the UN resolution about Libya. That resolution did not contain regime change, but it was used, it was manipulated. That's their view by the Europeans and the Americans in order to achieve a regime change. They do not want to repeat the same experience. And this is the most important reason why they actually have refused to back that resolution. So um, what can we learn from China? Well, I think that um, what we can learn from China is for sure flexibility and pragmatism, uh, two qualities that I think we Europeans at the moment uh, are lacking. Now, let me tell you a story just to show you why I think that. Uh, in uh, 1980, I went to work in uh, Hungary. I went to work at the National Bank of Hungary on a project for the convertibility of the Hungarian foreign. Um, I was there working with the um, governor of the bank, 
the National Bank of Hungary, uh, but there was also uh, a delegation from the IMF that was working uh, with us. Um, at that time, I learned of the existence of a document which was produced in 1978 by the KGB. Uh, later on, I actually did see this, this uh, document, whereby it was predicted that communism was going to uh, disappear to disintegrate uh, within a decade. And the reason why this was going to take place is because communists had failed to create an economy that was uh, sufficiently strong to produce enough growth for the population to prosper. Um, the uh, Hungarian used this document in order to push uh, very, very strongly from, uh, for uh, a convertibility of the foreign in order to use that as sort of opening up to the West. The Hungarian always had very strong ties with um, Austria, and so they wanted to use the convertibility of the currency in order to get out of you know, the Soviet bloc. Uh, the IMS was enthusiastic, and this is why the delegation you know, was sent there. Um, now, the Chinese also were perfectly aware that communism was not working. Um, and uh, of course the difference, uh, and this is very important, between the Chinese and the Soviet, and of course the Eastern European, is that the Chinese were totally isolated, while you know, Western Europe had been maintaining very strong ties in order to lure the uh, Eastern Europe and the Soviet towards um, our capitalism, uh, China was totally isolated. So there was no way that the Chinese could actually use the help of Western Europe. They had to do uh, something to change their economy in a completely different way. And uh, this explains why the model of development uh, um, after um, the beginning of the 1980s um, started to diverge completely. So, you know, the Russians went in one direction and you know, the Chinese went in totally different direction. And you know, democracy, of course, came eventually to, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, democracy never came to China. But today, China is the largest exporter in the world. It is the fastest growing economy. It is, you know, the economic miracle, basically, of globalization. So, uh, how did they do that? Well, basically what they did was to adapt communism to the needs of capitalism, because the only way that the economy could grow was to create something totally different, which you know, I define as cabbie communism, which is communism with a profit motive. Now, uh, the, the man who masterminded this uh, incredible transition was actually Deng Xiaoping. Now, Deng Xiaoping came to power in 1978, and uh, he uh, initiated a program of liberalization right in 1978. Now, it is important to understand the difference, um, historical background between Mao, Mao and Deng. Mao 
was the only member of the founding committee of the Communist Party in China that never went abroad. Uh, he had a completely different vision of China that you know, Deng actually had. Uh, Deng uh, studied in France. He worked at the Renault factory. Uh, he had a deep understanding of the functioning uh, of um, Western capitalism. And above all, he was purged during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, during those years, uh, he actually studied uh, uh, the capitalist system and became to, came to the conclusion that the only way to save socialism in uh, um, China was actually to open up to capitalism. So to use uh, the so-called enemy number one of communism in order to save you know, communism. And this is exactly what he did. So when he came to power, he started the process of liberalization um, in agriculture. So he gave the possibility to farmers actually to sell some of their product uh, uh, privately uh, in order to create a sort of two-tier price market uh, um, whereby um, progressively you know, the state control system could uh, become a sort of you know, free market system. Now this, unfortunately, uh, created um, some problems, and one of the problems was inflation. Um, inflation uh, started to pick up uh, from 1979, and uh, the, this created uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, unrest inside the country. Um, at the same time, uh, this liberalization demanded a progressive dismantling of the welfare state, the communist welfare state that China had, which was basically giving everybody a job, uh, a roof over their head, and a bowl of rice to eat. Um, so the combination of uh, inflation, prices so rising, and the dismantling of that kind of security that people had had uh, during a communist created uh, the perfect cocktail for you know social unrest, which erupted in 1989 in the famous Tiananmen Square demonstrations. Now that is a, a crucial moment in the history of uh, the development of China because because Deng Xiaoping did the unthinkable. The man who initiated this liberalization, the man that wanted to open up China to the world, so to get China out of that communism straitjacket created by Mao, repress with violence and force the people in Tiananmen Square. He actually gave the order to the tanks, you know, to roll into Tiananmen Square. Now, um, why did he do it? Because he had no other choice. Is he realized that the liberalization that he had initiated 10 years ago had gone completely wrong. So he went back to the drawing board and produced a new blueprint to open up the Chinese economy to the world. And in order to carry out this new um, vision, this new methodology, I would say, because the vision was actually the same, he had to gain uh, the support of people inside the party. It took him two years. Now, when in 1978 he initiated the, the process of liberalization, he encountered 
had encountered opposition both coming from the left and from the right of the party. After Tiananmen Square, these people felt vindicated. So Deng actually fought very, very strongly in order to start again the process of liberalization. Now, this time, the idea was we're not going to liberalize the entire country. What we're going to do is we're going to create special economic zone enclaves whereby we're going to experiment this new type of economy. Uh, the special economic zone became enclaves where basically capitalism could run totally free. No rules, no regulation. Now, what Deng realized is that uh, China did not have money to modernize. It was a poor country. I mean, you know, they were, there was still um, starvation in the countryside. So um, it needed to attract capital. That was the only way that the country could actually be modernized. So the special economic zone became uh, enclaves where the same conditions of the Industrial Revolution could be reproduced in order to start uh, a modern version of the Industrial Revolution in China, which means uh, basically labor exploitation. So what was the great resource of China? How did China manage to attract foreign investment? By offering cheap labor. There was no other solution. And that was perfect, absolutely perfect, because here we are, you know, we are globalization in the West, so, you know, there, there is a possibility of factory to be moved anywhere in the world. There are no barriers, uh, there is, you know, f total freedom thanks to deregulation. So the timing, the timing was absolutely perfect. So what Deng did. He created this special economic zone, and then he opened up the labor market. Now, that's another interesting element, because Mao had created a, a very rigid labor market in China. So people born in the countryside could only live in the countryside, and people in the city could only live in the city, unless, of course, you know, permission was given in order to do a certain kind of propaganda, which is what Mao really loved. Um, that had created a total stagnant economy um, to the extent that I said before, you know, starvation was not uncommon in certain areas in the countryside. So Deng basically opened up the market progressively, not in one go, so people could apply for permission to become migrant workers. So from the countryside, they could migrate to the special economic zones where they could work as workers in factories. Now, it was total exploitation. It's very, very similar to the script to the script of the enclosure of the Industrial Revolution. But the difference between the workers of the Industrial Revolution and the Chinese is that the Chinese were perfectly conscious of what was happening. Deng gave them the opportunity to be exploited, an opportunity that their parents did not have um, under Mao. And thanks to this exploitation, they could save enough money to go back home and start their own business. This is the beginning, really. It is very much the beginning of you know, the happy story of you know, the industrialization and modernization of, um, of China. Now, um, what I want to um, say now is that uh, 
The foreign capital that actually moved to China came initially from the diaspora, so Chinese from Taiwan, Malaysia, um, Indonesia also, um, who moved back to China uh, and with their money you know, invested in uh, factories. They also knew what to produce for the Western market, for you know, the so-called free world. But later on, uh, our industrialists also went there. So, what we've seen taking place in China is um, a tremendous exploitation. But the people that exploited the Chinese labor force were not the Chinese, were actually Western people and foreigners. Uh, what Deng did, he created the condition for this exploitation to take place. Now, of course, today you can say that China actually benefited tremendously because you know if the Chinese economy is what it is today is thanks to what they've learned through this kind of exploitation. Now among the people that benefited we find Apple computer. Now uh, that's a, another of the happy stories of, of the last decade. Uh, Apple becoming uh, the one of the largest company in the world. Look at the market capitalization is quite uh, astonishing. Now, what did Steve Jobs uh, do? Uh, he wanted to create uh, a new life, you know, a virtual life, and he wanted all of us, you know, to experience uh, this uh, new vision that he had. But there is no way that Steve Jobs would have achieved what he had achieved without the sweatshops of China. And in fact, this is what he did. He came back to Apple at the end of the 90s and he decided to offshore the production in China. Uh, that was a big risk at the time uh, because you know, he, he basically moved most of you know, the, the, the assembly line away from you know, the West into China. Um, and you know, he paid very well. Now, uh, the other thing that Steve Jobs did that most of the industrialists from the West did not do was to reinvest very quickly the profits in the company because he realized that the window of opportunity that Deng had offered was actually not very long. So it was about to close, and he was right. I mean, if you look at what um, Apple did, they launched the iPad in 2001, and you know, 10 years later, nine years later, they sorry, they launched the iPod in 2001, and nine years later, you know, we have you know the iPad, and you can see that you know that virtual life uh, through you know a series of product has been produced in a phenomenally short period of time. Now today, the condition um, of production in China are not any longer what they were you know ten years ago, and in fact, Apple has offshore production away from China to. Laos uh, to Vietnam, Cambodia, and what they're doing in China, you know, Foxton, for example, is just putting all the pieces to get together because the uh, Chinese worker is actually an excellent worker. I mean, it's n they haven't yet found in Asia um, a 
a work that can match that kind of perfection that the Chinese work can, can produce. So, so this is why you know we see this change. So we're seeing offshoring taking place from China to other markets in in Asia. Uh, so um, in uh, 2007, there was a, introduced a new legislation also in China that reflects the fact that uh, um, with economic development came also more and more social pressure from the workers in order to improve the uh, labor condition and their living condition. The legislation of 2007, uh, of course, was greatly opposed by foreign industrialists, and some of them decided to leave China because of that. So that took place actually before uh, the fall of the Lehman Brothers and before, of course, you know, the contraction of you know, the world economy. So to conclude, well, I think that um, Deng Xiaoping and Steve Jobs, um, they were able to implement really a revolutionary vision. I mean, thanks created the capi communism, it transformed a communist country, a backward communist country into you know, the next economic superpower. Um, and uh, Steve Jobs gave us uh, a virtual life, uh, which of course, if I had said something like this 15 years ago, you would have said, you know, what is it? <laughs> This crazy idea. But the reason why they achieved that, it is of course because they exploited um, uh, globalization, deregulation, all the changes that have taken place in, in the last 20 years. But above all, because they actually had the courage to think outside the box. I mean, Deng Xiaoping did the unthinkable. He actually repressed with violence the people that he wanted initially to free from you know, a communism um, that he did not believe uh, you know, was going to work any longer. Uh, Steve Jobs did exactly the same thing. You know, he decided to bank on you know, the Chinese market as you know, the only place where he could produce um, iPod, iPhone, and iPad at rock bottom prices so that every single individual could afford them. Now, this is a lesson for the European leaders. What, how are we approaching the European crisis? Well, I think you know, we're approaching the European crisis following a script that belongs to the last decade. None of these guys thinking outside the box. And unfortunately, in times of great transition, as Deng Xiaoping has shown us, the only way forward is to think outside the box, is to be innovative. It is to do the unthinkable. And until we accept that, I am afraid that we're going to think more and more into a recession that could become a great new depression. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Loretta, for a very <coughs> interesting talk. So I'll now open up for questions. There are um, roaming microphones around, so if I call you, could you just wait until the microphone reaches you so that everyone else can, can hear you? So any questions? There's one at the back there. Thank you. <coughs> 
Nitin Parshottam, retired local government officer. Having heard that last comment, I'm wondering when Barroso, the president of the EU, will send the tanks to Athens Square uh, to emulate uh, what Deng did in, in, in Tiananmen Square. But the, the, the real question is this. Um, is there any, any evidence of Chinese capital being used in the West pre Lehman Brothers? And if that's the case, how significant was that Chinese capital uh, in the Western economy at that point? Thank you. So question just that. Thank you for the lecture. I was just wondering, you mentioned uh, Mr. Deng Xiaoping used the violence uh, during the Tiananmen Square uh, event. Um, why do you think he didn't have a choice, you said that? Thank you. Um, there was somebody up in the top layer who had their hand up. Okay, I think, not you, but you'll do. Um, as that other person seems to have disappeared. Um, thank you very much for your lecture. Um, could you please um, explain a little bit more about to what extent um, do you think um, the experience of China's um, economic growth can be applied to Europe because um, like the context is so different um, in terms of population and land and industries and so on. So um, I just uh, appreciate if you could explain a, a, little, a little bit more about it. Thank you. Okay, Louis, okay, do so you want to take those yeah. three? Okay. Um, okay, so the, the, the first question, um, I think you know the Chinese were investing in in Europe and in in the West overall before uh, Lehman Brothers. Um, I would say that uh, a, a big proportion of the investment that was taking place was actually through the informal banking system, uh, which is very big among the Chinese. Um, very difficult to quantify also. Um, this is what they call the Guangxi. Uh, they have a, a network uh, of um, friends, family, um, relation, um, and they use this kind of network in order to fund their activity. Um, this is mostly um, taking place within the real economy, not in the financial market, of course. But this is really the backbone of a society that is uh, very um, aware of the danger of debt, uh, and therefore is a society that does not want to get into debt. Uh, one of the problems related to the low demand level in China is, is actually also that, is the fact that Chinese tend to save. I mean, the saving ratio is uh, much, much higher than the saving ratio uh, in the West, uh, because um, their philosophy of life is that you know I will not uh, do an investment until you know I have enough money to do that, which is very much you know the way that our grandparents <laughs> used to think. Uh, things have changed in the West, uh, I would say, you know, in the last 30 years. Um, so um, I would say that before Lehman Brothers, this was a large portion of their investment, and even today I still think it's a large portion. So difficult, very very difficult to quantify. Um, 
Deng did not have a choice. Well, I mean, Deng did not have a choice for two reasons. Number one, that system was not working. Um, clearly, the mistake was to liberalize the agricultural economy in one go. Um, in other words, not to localize, not to experiment with the transition. Um, so he had to change that. And number two, um, the party was dead against him because of the opposition from the um, left and the right. So uh, by repressing with violence uh, um, the protests, he actually managed to acquiesce the party, but at the same time also to stop a program that was not working anymore. And then, you know, he went back to the drawing board. It was a, I think it was a very, very difficult uh, relation. And, uh, but that also, I think, shows leadership. A leader must be able to take high risk. Otherwise, he's not a leader. And I think that's what we lack in the West. We do, you know, you, you can take Mrs. Thatcher, for example. You know, we can disagree no end about, you know, the bodies that Mrs. Thatcher has done, right? Uh, I went to London School of Economics in the 70s, so of course, you know, I disagree with Mrs. Thatcher. But she showed leadership. She took the risk. That is what we lack, and that's the lesson I think you know from Deng Xiaoping. Um, the Chinese economic model cannot be applied in Europe uh, or in the West. Um, it can be applied, of course, in uh, developing countries, uh, and uh, many um, experiments of uh, applications of that model are taking place today, for example, in Africa. Um, Angola is a very good example. Um, um, but why will it not work in the West? Because we are in a post-industrial society. We're not a developing country. Now, if the Chinese carry on the same way that we have done, you know, they'll get exactly where we are. So what we need is a new model of capitalism. Um, and I think one possibility, for example, uh, could be uh, to go back to the concept of common goods. Now, we can't go back to the welfare state because the welfare state did not wor work and is easily abused. But we got to find a way to adjust to a much lower um, income level because we're not producing as we did before and we will not produce as we did before. So um, maybe Mm, a solution could be to offer people a large variety of common goods whereby the um, income that they receive will be sufficient to maintain living standard to a certain level without, of course, you know, earning uh, so much more money. Um, these, of course, are hypotheses uh, that uh, uh, many economists are studying. I mean, we need a new theory. And of course, you know, nobody has studied any new theory for the last 20 years because they were too busy creating uh, equations uh, in order to make money. <laughs> But fortunately, this time is over. OK, a question here. The new Keynesians believed in a free government, sorry, free economy backed by the government, whereas the mainstream, the new classicals, believe in that it should be a completely free market. Do you think the Chinese government backs the economy and is still backing the economy at the moment? Would you think that it's time for the Kenyans to come back and become the mainstream now? Um, yeah, that's my question. Thanks. Uh, 
There was somebody just there. One opinion is that China is also in a debt crisis because uh, during the recession, actually China government invests a lot in the market, which the money, uh, most of the money goes to the state-owned uh, part of the economy, and uh, also go local government invests a lot, which gains a lot of debt. So, uh, in, in co according to the government statistics, which is untrustworthy, um, the debt is already very big. So. What's your opinion of that? And also, China's political reform, uh, not reform, evolution is not, it's kind of behind that of Vietnam, which used to be a communist country. So what, what's your opinion? Like, in, in this kind of economy maturity or very good development of China, um, at the meantime, what about its political evolution, which will uh, maybe harm or boost the future development of China? Thank you. Someone just right in the middle there, the stripey. Sorry, can you just pass the mic uh, along? Uh, you just talked about how the Chinese model could apply to the to developing economies, mm -hmm. and especially with the West struggling right now, the allure of Chinese of the Chinese system is you know as big as it could be. So, what parts of the Chinese system do you think developing countries in Asia and Africa could really draw upon? To, to benefit rather than, say, the Washington consensus. Do you want to take those yeah. three, Loretta? Um, 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 I need <coughs> about the Keynesian versus the neoliberal uh, model. Um, I, I think the Keynesian model, of course, you know, would work much better at the moment because look at, for example, the situation in Greece, um, austerity. Uh, does not work uh, because the, uh, what the Canadian school will tell you is that you know when you are in a recession you actually have to sustain the economy you don't have to cut um, but at the same time I think the, the the problem that we face today is the fact that we are heavily heavily into debt uh, so um, we have to adjust the Canadian model um, there is uh, a proposal which was launched by um, a group of uh, engineers actually in Italy. And the idea was uh, that um, we would create um, a sort of trust um, which will be placed uh, um, within the EU and um, people would participate uh, to this trust purchasing uh, the wealth uh, of the nations that are in trouble. So in the case of the Piraeus, uh, they launched uh, that idea when, of course, you know, the Piraeus was on sale. And the idea was, okay, we Europeans, uh, we have enough money in order to purchase uh, on trust uh, this kind uh, of facility and, and then uh, we'll run this facility until things will get better and then you know we'll return the facility to the state and you know we'll get the money with some profit. Um, I think it's a very good idea. I think it um, could be implemented but of course this is not the way that the EU wants to go. Uh, so it, it was totally rejected. They went, the delegation even went to Brussels, they presented it, and uh, um, it, they have a, a web page 
which is called Our Common Goods. And uh, if you go and look at the webpage, it's very interesting because you know they have, um, among the Greek, they have you know amazing, amazing followers. Um, because of course it was done specifically for for Greece. It was uh, produced a couple, I think it was a year ago, um, and it was supported also by Greek politicians. So interesting to see you know the people that actually have backed it. Um, the uh, debt crisis, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. There is uh, quite a lot uh, of literature at the moment about uh, the, the stimulus package that was put in place uh, after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Uh, this money, of course, were distributed through the system via uh, the banks, which are controlled by the Chinese state. Um, the local uh, governments uh, um, badly manage uh, a lot of these funds, uh, and therefore now they are in debt. Um, but the difference uh, between China and um, the West is that you know th this debt is on to the state. So basically, they could write it off. I mean, the problem? No, really. I mean, this is the thing. That's the difference between cabbie communism and. Uh, uh, a, a traditional capitalist system. Uh, the problem of Greece uh, is not that Greece has an 148% uh, of debt uh, only. The actual problem of Greece is that this debt uh, is in the hands uh, of German, French, and European banks. Because otherwise, you know, then we would see the collapse uh, of Japan, uh, whose debt is much higher than the debt of Greece, but there is no problem in Japan because you know the majority of that debt is in the hands of the Japanese. So I think that is a key issue to take into consideration. For sure, the central government does not like the way some of this money has been used, but at the same time, if press, I think you know they could simply write it off. They have enough money anyway. So well, let's see what's going to happen because that's something I think quite interesting to to follow. The political um, evolution, I think, uh, I think eventually they will have to face uh, democracy, um, meaning uh, with economic development, with modernization, with wealth spreading. People sooner or later will want to participate also to the running of the country. So there are experiments uh, <clears throat> of um, democracy at a uh, lower level. Um, there is discussion about the decentralization of power, which of course would facilitate a more democratic participation. Um, but I think the idea that China may become a democracy uh, in the same way of India, uh, I think is unfeasible. It's too big for a start. Imagine a democracy of 1.3, 1.4 billion people. Um, I think it's just unmanageable. Um, so they will have to come up with, with an idea. And I think they have a window of maybe 10, uh, 15 years, and then I think they'll, they'll face that, that kind of problem. And then the, the last question, uh, um, oh, yes. Well, <clears throat> I, think that, uh, I don't think anybody today will want to follow the Washington consensus. Uh, I mean, after what has happened, I doubt it. Uh, 
that, you know, uh, in fact, you know, I haven't heard the Washington Consensus uh, being mentioned uh, for a while. That we were mentioning now the Beijing Consensus, you know, the new one. But um, I, I think the, for developing countries, uh, um, the Chinese system may present some advantages in terms of. Uh, the fact, uh, what I said before during the lecture, is that you know the Chinese are interested only about China. So the leadership is committed to China. Um, China is paramount for them. So uh, to develop a country, to modernize a country, you need uh, that kind of commitment, especially if you are in a situation where the country is fairly you know, backwards and requires a major push. Um, I also think that the system of meritocracy, uh, which has been in place in China uh, for <laughs> centuries and centuries, uh, is another very good example. Now, I know that things uh, may be changing now because disequality, inequality is coming to China. And I'm pretty sure, actually, that this new leadership, uh, which will take um, power at the end of the year, will address that issue, because that is a serious issue that can create social unrest. And there is nothing that the Chinese fear more than social unrest. But I think meritocracy is, um, is fundamental if you want to um, develop a country. And for sure, the Chinese leadership has always been, um, in the last 20, 30 years, composed by people. They are extremely, extremely well-prepared, extremely bright. Um, and they are also good politicians. Uh, so I would say that these two are perhaps you know, the best elements to take into consideration. OK, there are some questions up the top there. Um, hi. Um, I'd just like to point out a few concepts to you. Um, I'm very interested to hear your happy communism model that you just described, I think is quite new to me. Um, but I'd just like to point out, actually, the capitalism, uh, sorry, the ca communism is originally from the West. And uh, if I remember correctly, it's from the Germany, the Karl Marx, who started. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and I just feel the, the way that you describe it feels to me that um, the capitalism and the um, communism is, is contradictory to each other. But, you know, the Chinese has invented something, it's like hybrid. Um, I, I just feel that perhaps you, you shouldn't mix these two things together because the communism is a um, um, social system instead of an economic model. So that's one point I like to make. Um, thank you. Uh, another thing is, um, you described this new model, but um, I didn't hear some new um, major features about this model. You did describe something about, uh, you know, how China has introduced um, the uh, free market, that um, people are free, you mean particularly farmers, are allowed to travel. But I think you perhaps missed the major point um, why this hybrid model works very well in China, which I believe is um, the, the community that China has, that people work together, that government, although we don't really have a 
you know, robust democracy system in China, but actually the government um, um, has put some power that um, this power has really encouraged people to work together and the farmers and some, you know, city workers as well. So I think that second thing you perhaps missed. Another thing is, um, you know, as a, as a national that I'm coming from China originally, I feel a lot of picture that you is still, you know, quite hostile. Um, for example, that tank picture, I feel, yes, that, that is part of the communism, but it's perhaps not everything. Um, originally, I thought, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here to learn that, uh, to see w what have you learned as a Westerner um, about the new model that China has invented, but you're still showing us a lot of, you know, hostile pictures, which I feel, you, you know, you perhaps are still a little bit biased. That's all. Thank you. Hello. Uh, at the end of your lecture, you mentioned um, about the next big thing and we should start thinking outside the box. But do you not think that uh, when Deng Xiaoping came to power, that he inherited uh, at a tipping point where it was just an ideal situation to go forward or perhaps collapse back down? Um, but right now, uh, there's no great demand in the um, Eurozone for a great upheaval, um, and, and, and perhaps that, that change will come naturally? Yes, um, you have mentioned Greece, uh, China, and some other countries as well. Um, I was wondering, um, under the most recent developments, um, what are the opportunities for the Chinese population to <coughs> to work in the Western Europe and in the broader um, European Union? And how do you think they can cope with issues such as linguistic, heritage, cultural heritage, cultural heritage mm -hmm. and cultural issues, bearing obviously in mind that there are some vacancies in certain countries of the European Union, in particular industries such as the service industry, the leisure and tourism industry, <coughs> and um, heavy manufacturing industries, etc., etc. Right. Um, uh, do, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know uh, how to answer the, the first question. Uh, um, I don't think the pictures were hostile at all. They were pictures. Uh, uh, how can a picture be hostile? Uh, showing Mao and Deng Xiaoping pictures. Um, I just show mostly graphs and, uh, and data. Uh, so, yeah, unfortunately, that's what I have. Um, Communism, uh, Marx and Engel wrote the Communist Manifesto, uh, but you know, they didn't create communism. Uh, communism is a system which uh, was created in several countries. Uh, it is different from country to country. Um, so it is a long discussion, but for sure, uh, China uh, was communist and still is uh, a lot of elements of communism. In fact, there are no elections. 
uh, there is a party that rules the country and uh, the party has an internal system uh, through which people uh, not only become member, which is very difficult, it is a meritocratic um, system, it is a, a democratic system also inside the party, but you know, it is not a democracy. So that is how it is. Now, having said that, uh, um, I describe the system as capi-communism because while you do not have democracy, you do not have political freedom of speech in certain kind of topics. For example, people cannot talk about what happened the 4th of June 1989 in Tiananmen Square. Um, I publish uh, all my books in Chinese, they're all translated, but they all are read by the censorship, which regularly takes out on my book uh, certain passages referring to certain things that in China cannot be published. So this is the situation. Now, in the economy, on the other hand, uh, there is total freedom. So you can't say that there is free market in China. And that's why I describe it as communism. So this is the hybrid that you describe. Now, of course, I am not an expert on China. You know, I am not. I mean, I'm an economist. I studied the Chinese miracle in order to use it as a benchmark, as I said at the beginning of the lecture, to understand what went wrong in the West. So I do not absolutely do not come here and uh, I would never do it uh, for presenting myself as the expert on China. But I actually have approached the Chinese miracle with a certain kind of humility and I've learned a lot and I decided to share what I learned with you know, my fellow Westerners. So that's what I've tried to do. I'm sorry I didn't satisfy you, but perhaps if you read the book... Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I do, uh, the second question is uh, about uh, thinking outside the box. Um, I agree with you, eventually the change will take place. Um, but the, the reason why I said you know, we have to think outside the box is because I am afraid that uh, we're going towards uh, a dramatic change. Um, what is happening in Greece to me uh, looks incredibly dramatic. Uh, we do not need to have people rioting in the street. We do not need people burning buildings in order to get out of this situation. What we need is actually something different. So to prevent um, people paying a very high social price, um, I think we should think outside the box. But I agree, I mean, it will happen. There is no way that you know, this system will stay as we have uh, conceived it uh, um, 10 years ago. Absolutely not. Um, about Chinese uh, working in Europe, uh, mm, well, I, I, I'm not really an expert on uh, cultural and linguistic issues, but I, I think that, at least from what I've seen, I, I did interview a lot of Chinese in Europe um, um, for, for this book. There is a section that talks specifically about exploitation of labor uh, taking place uh, um, in the West um, in sweatshops, uh, which are very similar to the one, you know, unfortunately that they were in China in the 1980s. Um, 
Uh, I think the language barrier is definitely, definitely very, very big, uh, um, and it's a great impediment uh, for assimilation. Uh, but this is true for uh, any kind of uh, <coughs> foreign community. Um, what I have noticed is that Chinese tend to stick together uh, because of <coughs> the Guangxi, because of this network. Uh, so their integration uh, within the society is actually much slower uh, than it is, for example, communities uh, of coming from Eastern Europe. Uh, that for sure. And they both face you know, the, the language barrier. OK, any more questions yet up, in the, up there? You. Can you just wait for the um, mic? Um, okay, I think you're doing okay, so I'll, I'll believe you. Okay, thank you very much. Hello. Uh, yeah, there's increasing signs in China at the moment of industrial unrest in the industrial heartlands, uh, brought about very much by employee dissatisfaction with their pay, their rights, etc., etc. Uh, also fueled by the growth of the social media in China. Uh, although Twitter is banned in China, I understand mm. that people have overcome that. Uh, the question really is, uh, what impact do you feel this is going to have eventually on Chinese competitiveness in Western markets? Because employees will start demanding greater employee rights. They will start demanding health and safety, environmental compliance with environmental legislation, which all the areas that Western manufacturers are cannot compete on. There's not a level playing field on competitiveness, as you probably know. But that must change over the next few years. At what point, if at any point, do you feel Chinese exports will actually be threatened uh, by the lack of competitiveness as more Western customers actually withdraw their purchasing from China? Uh, and finally, uh, China also, its home demand is growing, uh, very much so, and that seems to be a strategy of the leadership to actually create more equality, as you've said, and therefore create greater purchasing power for the Chinese people. At what point does the home demand become so, so of such a magnitude that China then cannot satisfy its demand for exports if, those, if that demand is maintained at the present level, which I don't think it will in future years, and will the Chinese government have to actually consider its whole strategy and actually start suppressing home demand, and will that lead to the next revolution in China? Thank you. Yes, sit down here. Yeah. So in the middle, I don't know whether that's best. You can have a race to see who can get the mic first. You win. <laughs> the one on the left one. Um, I'd like to ask about uh, intellectual property and uh, copyright. Um, it seems to me all very well that Apple outsourced their production to China to get it cheaply. But if uh, the price to pay is you get uh, iPhone clones and Louis Vuitton bags uh, and everything else uh, appearing on the market, uh, and those are not just niches, because I now understand that they're producing BMW clones for their own production on an industrial scale, 
Is that actually a sustainable model if they want to work with the West, if they uh, violate the, the intellectual rights all the time? Yeah, right up at the top, the orange. Mm -hmm. Hi. At future talks about China aimed at your fellow Westerners, will you request passport checks at the door? <laughs> I don't understand. You can Okay, perhaps we'll just take. Okay. You don't have to answer every. Question. I don't understand. I I'm afraid. I mean, do you, do you want to put that as a as a as a question, um, or I mean, because I think we're both a bit mystified by what you were referring to there. Because the simple answer to the question is no. There won't be passport checks at the door. If that's the information you were looking for, that's the answer to the question that you asked. But if it was really something else, then I think we'd like to know what the question was really. Okay. Okay. Fine. Um, well, um, I, I think the, the the first question is um, actually quite complex. Uh, um, there is uh, mm, there is actually uh, quite a lot uh, of freedom of the press in China, um, not only through the social media. Um, most of the scandals that you read in the newspapers. Uh, in the West uh, actually have been uh, broken by um, uh, journalists in China. And people get incredibly, incredibly upset and angry about uh, this kind of situation. So um, there is a cohesion also uh, among Chinese which is very strong. Uh, and there is a tradition also of uh, rebelling. Um, if you look at the history, 5,000 years of civilization uh, where you know one dynasty lasts um, on average 200 years and is overthrown uh, through a major, major revolution by another dynasty. Uh, because you know people are fed up and they think you know they're not doing their job any longer. So you know new dynasty comes. So in this kind of uh, long history, you may say that communism in China is another dynasty, and you know who knows what's going to come next. Uh, and maybe you know there will be another major revolution. Uh, but I think that at the moment, what the strategy is uh, is to um, sustain as much as possible the domestic market, uh, not only because there is a major recession taking place uh, in the world, but also because potentially uh, China is big enough to be totally self-sufficient in terms of market. Now, if you think about this, you know, 1.3 billion people, uh, this is like you know more than twice you know the the U.S. and the European market. Uh, so we're talking about you know mega mega market. And uh, what you said about uh, the trade-off between exports and domestic de demand may actually you know take place eventually. Um, but if you uh, look at an economy that could be totally self-sustain uh, in, in terms of growth and in terms uh, of market, then the problem of competitiveness assumes different aspects because you're not competing with uh, outside, um, with foreign economies. You're not competing for foreign markets. You're basically you know, controlling your own market. And if China doesn't take the democratic route the same way we did, uh, then you know you could uh, regulate the market uh, 
relatively easy, uh, which means you could maintain uh, the status quo uh, for much longer than you know, in any other situation. Now, of course, you know, eventually the status quo ne never lasts forever. I mean, everything changes. But I, I think that if we want to look at the long term, uh, this is probably uh, the strategy that the leadership uh, is following at the moment. Uh, it may change uh, with the new leadership, but I doubt it. Um, the other um, question was, uh, the inter I mean, in, I have a, I mean, I have two chapters on intellectual property in the book, and um, uh, it's very complex, uh, this issue also, because the truth, I mean, what I have discovered um, in China is this, uh, and in the West, is that uh, in reality, the fake market um, is a sort of free advertising for many of these companies. We're talking about Louis Vuitton, Armani, and blah, blah, blah. Um, there is an interesting element here of making that product accessible to everybody. So why Steve Jobs wanted everybody to have exactly the same product? I mean, you know, that was, uh, I think, the genius uh, of the true industrialists uh, uh, following the script of the Industrial Re Revolution. So everybody should wear uh, um, dresses made of cotton. Why not? The strategy of this kind of haute couture or you know particularly expensive products is that uh, I don't want everybody to have my products because then you know, of course I'm going to kill my margins therefore I let the fake be bought by people that can't afford so I'm perfectly happy and I tell you this because I actually have done um, an experiment I um, the, the person who told me this uh, is actually a magistrate in Naples uh, who put me on the right track because he said, look, you go to any shop uh, of you know, the very expensive shop in Naples uh, and uh, on the shelf you will find the fake next to the original because there is no difference, absolutely no difference. So, so what I did, I went to China, I went to the fake market and I bought uh, um, an Italian designer handbag uh, um, and of course, I bought it for you know very little money. I went to the shop in Italy, saying that the zip was not working very well, and you know what? They did not recognize that it was a fake. <laughs> so this is so. What does it mean? Uh, I think you know, intellectually speaking. Um, we have to reinvent the concept of the copyright, uh, the concept of the patents and all this stuff. Uh, but it's not because the Chinese are so good at cloning our products. It is because the Chinese are producing our products. And this is again what I discovered when I went to China, is the fact that if, um, before uh, the Georgia Armani, for example, label uh, was produced uh, uh, in a certain factory in China, and the quality control was done by the Georgia Armani people coming from Italy. This doesn't take place anymore. Now, Georgia Armani goes to a factory which is run by Chinese. The quality control is done by the, the Chinese. In that factory, they not only produce Georgia Armani trousers, but also Yves Saint Laurent uh, trousers and all the others, because they're so good at doing it. So what the Chinese are doing uh, is instead of producing uh, 20 
uh, George Armani, I produce 220, you know, go to Italy, and, and then, you know, the rest stay in China and we sell them. So, uh, what is the copyright? What is the patent here? Because, you know, the Chinese are actually doing all the work. You may say, well, George Armani does the design. Absolutely true. Then George Armani should protect his design, meaning he should not go to China, but he should produce it with a control of quality done by George Armani, not by somebody that. So uh, it's a very big issue. Uh, one thing I want to add before uh, to conclude is also what the, these companies are doing also is another trick. Um, so the product is produced in mainland China and let's say you know, handbag costs seven euros, okay? But the export documentation is done in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a free uh, port, therefore you, know, you can bring the goods without you know, any kind of control, and then the goods can sail from Hong Kong, right? In Hong Kong, they will put the cost of the goods, because of course you know, it's not coming out of the factory anymore, it's coming out you know, from the port, they'll put the cost at 70. So the goods will enter Italy at 70, which means that the taxation will be levied on a product that was costed 70 and not 7. And that everybody does it. But it's impossible to control it because Hong Kong is a free market. There's a free port. Now, of course, what we could do is put controls at the factory gates. But the factories are not any longer run by Western, they are run by Chinese. And we have no jurisdiction. So. Okay, I'm, I think, I'm afraid we, I think we've probably run out of time. We haven't got time to get a, a, another round in. So I'd uh, just like to remind you that Loretta's book will be on sale outside and then she's happily agreed to stay for a while to, to sign copies of that. Uh, but I'd just like to you to join me in thanking Loretta for a very interesting. Evening.